and we donate those to various organisations. We have been supporting the Signature Library in Soweto. They're, they're a little overloaded with books now, and we're moving on, and particularly focusing on schools and school libraries. And I just wanted to share a few statistics with you that I was horrified to read today. Um, firstly, there's no national policy to compel schools to have libraries. I, I was shocked to hear that statistic. There's some 26,000 schools in South Africa. 20,000 schools have no libraries. Only 8% of schools have a functioning library. And another interesting statistic is that 50% of learners use school libraries for homework and for studying because they haven't got a facility in their home. So it's up to us to really share knowledge through the books that we hope you will be donating. We do have our box at the back of the room um, and we don't charge an entry, but we do ask that you bring along a used business or an educational book to donate. Um, so, you know, my question is, how can we expect children to learn and achieve if they have no access to knowledge? It's up to us. We're fortunate enough to have that access. And please, with your help, we want to help as much as we can. It's Shark's passion uh, to really promote the Business Book Club. That's what we're doing. We hope to expand very soon through South Africa, and we want to reach all the rural areas that really have very little. So without further ado, I'll introduce you to Jacques and Karen. Thank you. everybody and welcome to the business book club um, this is this is this is one of so many events that we've had who is here at the business book club tonight for the first time please raise your hands okay you guys are all gonna have to ask one question at least to our author tonight I've, uh, that's that's part of what the business book club is about guys we the business book club is about the sharing of knowledge uh, because we don't know what we don't know and if we want to change things we've got to obtain knowledge We've got, to, we've got to understand what we don't know so that we can change behaviors. Because only through change behaviors can we change environments. And when you are privileged like we are, um, we've got access to knowledge. And we sort of assume it, not that we use it that often, but we definitely assume it. But there's a hunger out there for knowledge. Um, and the purpose of the Business Book Club is to provide that, is to feed that hunger. Feed that hunger through knowledge. Because you know we don't want to teach, we don't want to give people fish. We want to teach them to fish, and knowledge and knowledge is the power behind that, um, and definitely through books. So tonight we are very privileged to have Karen uh, visiting us. Karen, welcome to the Business Book Club and welcome to Scoops. Yeah. So so before we talk about the book, Karen, because we know you turn up books every now and then. I mean, you do this for a hobby. Um, share a bit about us, who, who's Karen and where, where's, where's Karen from? Gosh. The person behind the book, that is. <laughs> um, good evening everybody, it's really lovely to be here. And thank you, on such a cold night, it's far easier to stay at home than it is to come up. So it's really lovely to be here, to be part of the conversation. So my name is Karen and I, uh, I started off life as a journalist. 
And I think that's really about being curious about the world around you. But I spent quite a few years in the NGO sector and left feeling quite frustrated with what our perceptions and perspectives of what change looks like, what those perspectives are. And I was very lucky enough to study at Gibbs and I've continued to study mm -hmm. since then to really start looking at different methods and models of how we achieve change in our society. How do we challenge our cultural perceptions of charity? How do we challenge our perceptions of doing good? How do we challenge the world that we see and the world that we want to impose on others? And this very weird and winding path, because there really is no career path to this journey, um, led me to the world of social entrepreneurship and this blended environment of how you achieve social change, but at the same time, give yourselves or enable the, the, the choice that comes with actually earning an income rather than being dependent on the income or the grants of others. And that's very much what led to writing the book with Gus, um, which is was about mainstreaming the concept of social entrepreneurship and to transform it from being this frontier conversation that was a little bit exclusive, sat in a business school. The idea was really to transform it into a noun, something that we could see, feel, and touch. Right, Karen. So you, I mean, so I mean, being a social in the social environment, it's always been part of your blood. It's always been something that that you've obviously been interested in, um, and hence why you why you wrote. Has anybody read this book? Has anybody read this book? So, so what are this business book club of people are reading books? I mean, where's your knowledge coming from? So, so, so the great thing about the Business Book Club is you can come here and you can either decide to buy the book or not. Um, but at least here you get a taste of what knowledge is about and what more uh, Karen has put into this book. Uh, she will definitely stay afterwards for signatures and you know, you've got to, you'll be able to purchase the book very easily. But people just take the book and they go downstairs and they, the counter is open and they, and they can purchase, purchase the book. What was the motivation? What is the real motivation for the book? Because you, you were already doing stuff to help people change this, this and understand this concept of, of social entrepreneurship, but why did, you, why did you go through the efforts? Has anybody ever written a book before? Okay, so, I mean, writing a book is, is like the easiest thing to do. Hey, Charlotte? It's so easy. You just wake up one morning and you write it. I mean, so there's a hell of a lot of effort that goes into this. So what, what was the motivation behind that? You know, the, I, I wish I could clearly articulate them, but I think there's a level of crazy that goes into any decision to write a book and then to continue in completing a book. Because it's one thing to write a book and there's another thing to actually see it in print. It's, it still amazes me to see the book. But this is a topic that I'm particularly passionate about. Um, I was teaching social entrepreneurship. We were seeing increased numbers of people coming to us asking, how do we, you know, we want to work in meaningful, we want to be meaningful entrepreneurs. We want to understand what impact is. We want to understand what social change is. We want to understand what charity means to us. So the motivation for the book was, was very much around trying to probably be a little bit legitimate myself. So that instead of going to a bribe, and I know today is the coldest day of the year, none of us are currently thinking about a bribe, but you know, fast forward to summer and it's 30 degrees outside and that classic Johannesburg conversation when people say, and what do you do? And I would be like, well, I work in social entrepreneurship and people would start glazing over and they would start hustling over to another kind of group of folk. And I really wanted to 
encourage an understanding or build an understanding of what this blended model of social entrepreneurship is. So I know what your next question is, which is what is social entrepreneurship? Oh, I, I, I mean, everyone has read the book, so they know. So the next time I have a bribe with all of you, then you don't have to answer the question. But it really is the space that exists between for-profit and not-for-profit. And when you think about the depth of social change that's required in South Africa, we cannot continue to fuel it on fuel that um, change through grant funding. We cannot keep relying on philanthropy and benevolence to enable the depth of change. Jane was talking about schools. We have 6,000 schools in South Africa with libraries. So you cannot rely on your goodwill to transform that. So how do you start bringing a commercial model so that you can introduce a library into a school and introduce a model that that library can operate on so that it's not dependent on grant funding? So it operates as a scoops, as an example. And so you start challenging your association with charity. You start challenging your association with how you do good. And that's what happens in the middle of that spectrum. When you start opening up the world that exists between for-profit and not-for-profit, there's a big empty space there at the minute, but that's the space where social and economic change in South Africa exists. So, so one of the things that, that's really great about this book is these are South African stories. This is not stories about another country in another place. These are South African stories with South African authors. And although none of these, these I mean, I, I personally know one or two of the people in here, but they're not famous people. No. Um, so what makes them so special about, about writing? Because she actually, I mean, this, this book is very well put together. It tells you the story, and then it, it almost becomes a bit of a textbook where she analyzes the models, and you get a clear, those I view of what the model is that those social entrepreneurs use, but why these entrepreneurs? So I think I think this is a typical story of South Africa is that we that there are people operating there are people working to progress our social change and they tend to operate under the radar because we've got quite an industrialized model of success and we, we tend to focus on quite a capitalist model that success is about how much money you have in the bank and the size of your house overlooking a Western Cape Beach somewhere, generally as a rule. I'm stereotyping quite dramatically. But, but we're a very committed society, and when you look at the academic rationale for social, for social entrepreneurship, it works in countries where there is high inequality and where the generational gap is not massive. So where you can see, feel, and touch the generation where you've progressed from. South Africa is a perfect environment for social entrepreneurship because those are all characteristics that we all share across all race groups, is that we can see, feel, and touch where our parents were, and we can see, feel, and touch where we would like to be ourselves and where we would like our children to be. So the people in the book are out there. I mean, these are just, we profiled 18, and the three, the four folk that we profiled on the, on there's an e-book as well. But, but this isn't the beginning and the end of the story. There are hundreds of social entrepreneurs out in South Africa, all chasing what they see as a meaningful combination, a, a meaningful existence of how you blend your career, what it is you get paid to do, with what it is that you're connected to do. And that connection that they share is very values driven. It's about what is it that I can do to progress my society? That's their question. And the interpretation of success is very much translated into not, I need to have the house of the coast with the view of 
table mountain, whatever. My sense of value, my sense of success comes from a range of things. It comes from an emotional co connection to my country, comes from an emotional connection to doing good, but it also means that I don't have to sacrifice leading a decent life. I can earn a decent living wage while doing good. And that's the substantial difference between charity and social enterprise. But, but Karen, share with us a story so that, you know, so, that, so that we can understand what does that mean. I mean, which of your stories in here do you think um, talks to that concept the best? Or, or maybe not the best, but it's the easiest to, to understand and to comprehend and define this definition of social entrepreneurship. I told you that he has to kick me if my answers get too long. <laughs> because I could talk about this for ages. So, let me give you some statistics, right? So South Africa scores on the Global Competitive Index. We score the worst in the world for our, the quality of our maths and science education. We score the worst in the world for the trust that exists in our labor market, and we're pretty much bottom of the index for our health indicators, our HIV, our TB. These all represent substantial, what we call neglected problems. These are issues that government, they're too complex for governments to resolve. And I think we need to move on from the logic that governments must just resolve stuff. Governments exist to enable a society. They're, they, they create an ecosystem within which we can thrive, Business exists to provide goods and services that are in their self-interest to produce. And civil society, the classic model of civil society, is to sweep up. It provides the goods and services that government is too bureaucratic to provide. It's, government is not really the agency you want to go to for something as nuanced as child protection services, as an example. Or, as we're seeing increasingly in the South African environment again, which is fantastic, social justice, holding business and government to account. Bear with me, I'll answer your question in as short a way as I can. So when you look at what is the opportunity spotting for social entrepreneurs, these are not commercial entrepreneurs. They are not looking at the market and going, how can I make as much money as I can? Where's the gap? They are looking at where are the neglected problems in your society and going, what is it that I can do? What is it that I can do to, to transform this, to change it, to move it forward? And so when we look at, to go to a question, one of the, the simple examples of social enterprises, they exist in those market failures. We're seeing a massive rise in low-cost, high-quality clinics in South Africa. Why? Because our health service is, is bordering, is, has been in deep constraint for a very, very long time. Same with examples like Spark Schools. Low-cost, so if you send your kids to a Spark School, you will not be paying any more than sending your child to a government school. But the quality of education addresses that neglected problem of us being at the bottom of the index for maths and science education. So you start to see how we see the world differently when you look at it through the social entrepreneurial lens. Because you're looking at it through, an, so, so you're not offering schools, schools for free. You're saying folk will pay. And, and part of this is also transforming our perception of what poverty is, which we often associate as being financial. Poor people have no money. And we neglect to understand the complexity of what poverty is, which is that people who we regard as poor actually have no choice. It's a different thing. And what social enterprise does is it starts offering choice into the system. It starts enabling people to say, I want to send my child to a good school. This is how I can do it. I want to go to a clinic, and I don't have to walk a day to get there. It will cost me 50 rand. 
And that's how we start seeing the system changing. Didn't quite answer your question. <laughs> yet, yet, we've got the whole evening but I, I hope they gave you some background. <laughs> I'm going to be here for a while. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so, I mean, one of the stories that I really enjoyed from, from the book is actually the first story in the book. So it's, I mean, I, I, yeah, the name of the guy I can't remember, but it's but uh, Ludwig. So he's the guy who developed the soap. Does anybody know about the soap guy? So the soap that you don't need any water with or for. I mean, does very well in Cape Town now, um, or used to. But I mean, that's what he created, created for, for the townships where they don't have water or where the access to water is, is very little. And, and how is he doing today? Because the story was, was prime at a, at a, at a while, but is he, is, he, is, he continuing, is he continuing that? Or do they saturate the market and then fulfill the need and move on to something else? What happens to these guys? So this is such a fantastic question because social, social entrepreneurs exist on a frontier. They technically don't exist, right? In South Africa, we only have for-profit companies and we have not-for-profit not companies, but we don't technically have social enterprises. If you want to fund your social enterprise, your corporate social investment folk or your grant funders are going to say, but you're not a not-for-profit, you know, you're a for-profit company and the for-profit, the bank's apps is going to turn around and go, but why? You're CSI. So, I think I'm trying to articulate that one of the biggest issues that we face in strengthening the social enterprise environment in South Africa is there is no environment for social enterprise in South Africa. And this is why these people are incredible, because they put everything on the line for a very strong values and belief system. So I left Gibbs um, in October of last year and joined the International Labour Organization to create this environment. So we're working with the Department of Economic Development to say, let's develop a policy framework that can enable organizations like social enterprises, not just to survive, but thrive. Recognizing that South Africa's gap between its economic growth and its social development is massive. And that we cannot continue to rely on the economy to uplift our social development. We, we just can't. It's too complex and it's too simple an approach. So what happens to folk like Ludwig? Everybody in that book is a story of resilience who goes through different phases because they, they technically don't exist within the system. So folk like Claire Reed, so, so I'm giving you a vague answer, but it's actually, it's just because these folk are innovators. So, so there is no stopping point. They're constantly looking for the next step. So I bumped into Claire Reed the other day who runs Real Gardens, who, I mean, you know, the, the seed strips. Fantastic example of a social enterprise. Her genuine focus is around food security, getting vegetable gardens going in communities and schools, and she funds that through the sale of seed strips and thrups, etc. And Claire is very open about sharing her points of failure. But when I was chatting to Claire the other day, she was looking, <laughs> she was looking at revolutionizing the taxi industry. And so her brain is constantly wired to see where the issues are and what she can do to improve. And folk like Ludwig, constantly wired. So in a way, the, the answer is it's not about the success of the product. We've got to reframe what our view of success is. We have to ask ourselves different questions. I don't know the long answer. I'm so sorry. But, but I mean that. So 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 that's the so so inside me, I've got two people. So I've got the capitalist who wants to make money, and then I've got the person who who likes to give uh, and share and 
But how do I marry those two? Without divorce. <laughs> <laughs> So I think the important point to this question is that you need both ends of it. So I see this as a spectrum. You've got for-profit companies on one side with your capitalists that have an absolute place in the world. I need to buy Colgate toothbrush to clean my teeth every morning. Fantastic. I don't expect them to change the world. And at the other end of the spectrum, I have my classic charities, your philanthropy-funded organizations that rely on donations from you and I to function. And they serve an essential purpose in South Africa. We all have a responsibility to fund child protection, hospice, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens in the middle? And, and that's why there's no definition for social enterprises. It's because they plot in the middle of the spectrum. Some associate more like Sharon G. Chan at the Math Center. <laughs> Good timing, hey. Uh, more with, with um, non-profit organizations. Sharon G. is still reliant on grant funding. That's perfectly fine. But she generates an income through the sale of training materials, teacher training programs, et cetera, et cetera. And you start seeing the shifts. And then you get other folk who, like Jonathan Liebman, where you can have ongoing arguments as to whether Jonathan is a social entrepreneur or not. And Jonathan himself challenges the title. And that whole development of Mother Name down in Johannesburg, you could say, well, the consequence of that is gentrification, so it's a bad thing, or you're developing an, an area in the city that was a no-go zone, and you're dedicating it towards art and a, a deeper connected cause for the city. You're creating a city's character. That's the point. There is no definition. And these organizations shuttle along the spectrum. Some will stay social entrepreneurs, some won't. Some might go back to being non-profits. I don't mind. What's important for me is that there's options and that you can open up this middle of the spectrum to encourage folk like Sharon G, Jonathan as a social purpose business, folk like Kova Naidu, who runs a multinational social enterprise from Durban. And these organizations aren't necessarily small, but they're happening. And I think it's important for us to, to learn and, and understand what, what we can do. No, no, you're perfect. I mean, it's well rehearsed, so well done. Um, so before I, I ask the audience a question, or, or, or allow them to ask you a question, there's two things that come to mind. So the first one is, it's great because they're allowing options, they're creating options for, for folk who not necessarily would have had options. Um, so that means you're expanding the market. Um, which means you're expanding the ability for people to, to participate in the market because that's, I mean, that, was anybody here with Gigi Alcock when we, when we spoke about Gigi Alcock and um, so Gigi Alcock comes from the, have you, have you met Gigi Alcock? So he, he was brought up on the, on the banks of the Zulu River um, and he speaks better Zulu than, than, than most and he talks about the, the, the cosinomics of the, of the informal market and, and, and the economy that's actually going around there which we don't necessarily realize and stepping into that market, which is which is the important part of what we're excited about. Um, now I've given you such a long answer, it's completely forgotten my question. <laughs> I love when that happens. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I can give you so this is one of the great things about social enterprise, is that it's it has the opportunity to take us out of our highly urbanized economy. And our sense that business success is in building an SAB Miller or a Discovery. Because what social enterprise does is because you're spotting opportunity in your community, it means that it's not limited to urban areas. 
So if you're in the middle of rural KZN, along the banks of the river, and you see an opportunity to clean up the river, and, and we see that a lot in waste entrepreneurship, and recycling waste as an example, that means that you're starting to create a market, a small market, but in an area which is typically does not have substantial economic activity. And when we start understanding what social change really is, that's substantial social change. Because suddenly you're generating income, and we know through economics that the, you know, there's some very simple concepts. I'm no economist, so I, I don't want to talk on behalf of the profession. But if you have a rand, and you can get that rand to spend as much time in that community as possible, that rand has more value. And that's what you start creating with social entrepreneurship. Small markets in hard to reach places that are often ignored because they're hard to reach. While, enab while enabling citizenship, encouraging people to have the confidence to take action. Those are some very, very powerful ingredients that really can enable substantial systemic change. And that's why social entrepreneurship is exciting. Cool. <laughs> any, any questions, guys, for, for carrying on this, on the subject so far? I mean, this is, this is massive stuff. Kim. Regulating the the waste pickers. So I have to say, so I actually live in a Kuruleni, So actually, I only heard about this about a week ago. So I don't want to be vague in my answer, but I actually I don't have a, a deep thought thought through understanding. But I can give you some perspectives. There are two sides to regulation. The one side, and, and I say this now as somebody who's kind of trying to regulate this world, and, and there's a downside to regulating, right? You can stifle innovation, you, you're formalizing the informal, um, et cetera, et cetera. You, you can, you know, there's some very valid considerations that need to be considered. I think we have to do everything in our power to extend the opportunities for employment and generating income to as many people as we possibly can in South Africa. And I think that's our goal. And I think our role as citizens is to agree with policy and to disagree with policy. And to voice your issues around well, what is the future of waste pickers in, in our country, starting with the city of Johannesburg. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sitting thinking that um, that's your duty, is to voice that concern. It's actually not my opinion, because I think, I think they do a fantastic job, and I think we should be there to enable them, and whatever regulatory environment is put in place should be an enabling one. That's the role of your government. The role of your government is to create an enabling ecosystem within which we can all thrive. That's their role, and that's so what we want. I've just become too cynical, because as soon as I, I see the government making 
regulating something like that. I just think the government wants money from it. It's not the government, it's our, our government. government. Yes. And I think these are important distinctions. It's like when we talk about the youth, it's not the youth. And I think we will be careful about othering in the South African society. This is our government. And we have a voice in that government. And we have, a, we have letters to write and conversations like this to have. And we won't always win. But I think it's really important for us to rediscover our voice and to, and to participate in the processes. So I'm, I know that's not a yes or no answer. But I think that's what social entrepreneurship does. Is it, it, is it, it reconnects you to the world of what active citizenship can look like. And that it's not always just writing a letter to the star and then going, oh, I tried and it didn't work. And I think that's important for all of us. I love that because it means we've got to be playing active, more of an active role in our society and in our context and stop, not stop, but you know, I, I think we should be critical. I think we should always be critical because without, um, you know, being critical, you, 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 um, you know, I heard a beautiful story the other day of, of, of two men agree on everything. One of them isn't needed. Um, and, 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 and that's what we've got to work towards. You know, when, when people are disagreeing, it's okay because you get the best answer there. And, and we should stop not agreeing and just sitting back and, and waiting for stuff and just commenting. Any other questions? Oh, I've got two there. I love it. I love it. Uh, sorry, that was quite... Did you guys want to do it again? We can see who was first. <laughs> Andrew. So, I mean, just to clarify that for everybody, so what Andrew's saying is in any industry where you disrupt, it's a standard industry. So it's already created, and now, by disrupting it means there's going to be a lot of um, roadblocks and challenges, and how do you overcome that um, as, a, as, a, as a potential disruptor? And how do the other guys in the POC, how do they overcome those challenges that they faced? Um, and it could have been easy. So I, I love this question, and I might give you a slightly theoretical answer because it's something that I'm studying at the moment. But it's about trust and legitimacy. And, and what happens, and, and that was one of the reasons for the book, was that suddenly, here's this book on social entrepreneurs. There's more than one crazy person out there, right? And it's been published by one of our top universities. So that gives it the conversation, legitimacy. And the consequence of legitimacy is trust, and suddenly you start seeing buy-in from the system. Our social entrepreneurs exist on a frontier. They're not accepted, they're not well understood, they're considered to be crazy, they can't get loans from the bank, you know, see if, you know they, they operated for many, many years as you know, really forging a, a path forward. And what happens with folk like Spark is that the, 
because the issue with Spark is that we, I won't say the issue with Spark, you work there, but um, one of the things that we see is, is now there's a, a massive increase in the rise of low-cost, high-quality schooling, right? The model gets replicated and then, and then your capitalist system kicks in. And isn't that what success looks like? Isn't that fantastic? And so I might be answering your question in a roundabout way, but I think that the great strength of our disruptors is that they have extraordinary courage to step out into a great unknown, ruffle an entire system and hang in there long enough until it gains legitimacy and everybody jumps in the bandwagon. Which goes back to your question around where's Ludwig, where's Stacy, where's Ryan, what have you. These are folk who are constantly thinking sideways and they're constantly spotting opportunity in spaces that are probably invisible to the majority of us. And that's why we need to love them, I think. We really need to support them. One of the biggest issues that we have in South Africa is that we don't actually encourage failure enough. And if we could encourage people like Stacey Brewer and Ryan Harrison who started Spark Schools as an example, to fail, can you imagine what success we could achieve from that? I don't know if that answers your question, but I think a lot of it is about building legitimacy in the conversation. And, and, and so you sanction it, and then it becomes mainstream. I want to hang on to that because I think some of the issues that we do have is when we start businesses, whether it's social or not, there's usually funding behind it or an, an, an element of funding and usually big funding. I know in Sparks there was massive funding. So what failure means is that nobody gets paid and people lose the money. And that's where it becomes a different conversation um, because nobody goes, or do you know of anybody? Maybe, maybe that's a reverse question. Do you know of anybody that goes in here or that part of your research have failed and the banks or whoever the funders were said, ah, it's fine, let's move on to the next one. So there are lots of stories of failure and I don't think we've told them enough. But something like Anne Gutenberg-Shongwe, uh, who now heads up UN Women um, and was running her social enterprise and, and said enough. I'm going to kind of put this on hold because the grant funding model is actually just too onerous to keep sustaining. So, so you see the decision-making processes on different sides of the spectrum. The great value of grant funding in South Africa, in any environment, is that it allows you to take risk. It allows you to innovate and to fail and to try again. And, and that's really, when we talk about corporate social investment, if we could channel CSI funding into greater innovation, greater risk-taking, I think you could see some quite substantial transformation if the relationship with your donor is one that is prepared to accept failure. Somebody like Claire Reed, Claire talks about this very honestly, um, had funding from one of Anglo's big funds and she stepped away from it because the requirements of the donor was not where she wanted to take her organization. And this is a classic tension that we have in social enterprises. Running a social enterprise is not easy. You have to, you have to compromise both commercial and social logics. You've got to be a profit business while at the same time doing good. So, you, so, so what is your marker of success? And if your donor tells you to do something and they're giving you a million rand, it's easy to be drawn in that direction. So you've got to really hold true to your goal and, and be confident in your vision. And that's hard. Like that takes... It takes real strength. So I think all of these, all of the examples in this book are stories of failure. But that's disruption. 
because they've gone down the road and they've had to turn back and they've had to try and figure their road because they technically don't exist in the South African environment. There is so much that we can learn from our social entrepreneurs. I, I, um, I used to talk about them being our super entrepreneurs. If you want to learn about entrepreneurship and how to build a business in South Africa, talk to a social entrepreneur who can't access funding, whose market is in, it doesn't exist, <laughs> it's outside of an urban area, and how they manage to build a successful business, there's so much we can learn from them because I think they constantly play in disruption and failure. I'm going to ask the same question next to Andrew. Or was that answered? second one is what's coming out of the woodwork in terms after you've written the book like people coming up and saying hey I'm also one so they're fantastic questions thank you so the first thing is is that the book is is I cannot claim ownership of this book this book is is the brainchild of many fantastic people who I work worked with and continue to work with um, it was her idea she was studying the social entrepreneurship program and she's like enough we need to know what our South African story is I'm tired of reading an example from Harvard. So the idea for the book is comes from, and this is going back to a point of disruption, generally fantastic ideas come from groups, right? Groupthink. We did the book <laughs> once we had the idea and um, we sourced the funding, we went with it. And we wrote the book within two years and Gus was fantastic. And Gus obviously has a number of books under his belt as well and is an incredible storyteller. Um, and all credit to the book writing team. So we had an extraordinary project manager. Bookstorm as a publisher were phenomenal. And Gus and I worked really, really well together. Um, but, it's, but books have a life. And I think that's what's great. You publish a book, but then this book, it just create, keeps creating energy. I saw a, a clip from J.K. Rowling the other day, and she said libraries are magic. And that magic is created by the books in the library. And that's what I've seen with writing a book, is that there's this, I mean, look at us. We're all out on the coldest day of the year, just because of the magic that exists in these pages. Do people keep coming? Absolutely, and so they should. And this is why we're creating a policy environment, so that we can create a conversation. That's really what we're doing, and, and to allow people to tell us what it is that they want. This is not Karen's idea of what our social enterprise landscape should look like in South Africa. It's your idea and everybody else out there in the country. So Gibbs is publishing a second book. It should be coming out quite soon. I'm, I, um, I haven't been that involved in the second book. And then there's funding that I just received. We're doing some fantastic work in strengthening the networks around social enterprises, connecting the conversations, creating curriculum, that's available to all of our universities, not just Joburg and UCT and Pretoria. And so really, just connecting the dots, and I think that's very exciting. Any worms that came out of the woodwork because of this? 
Well, well, the question was, is there anybody that, 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 that wasn't profiled in the book that came out that you thought was an interesting story? on this topic and South Africa for me is world world class in our innovation and in our approaches. We're an exciting space. Another question? Yes, it's been answered. Any other questions? Oh. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Yes, we've got another one there. Thank you for that, because I think that's what Kieran is saying, is that, that this country is so ripe for that type of opportunity um, to be exploded. But what you guys are really doing, and I mean, maybe share with us a bit more, because you've, you've left Gibbs, and you're not with them anymore, and what you are doing in terms of actually supporting and, and creating this, this thing, because social entrepreneurs didn't exist, or the name didn't exist a few years ago. But now you're starting to... Uh, or maybe it did, but now you're starting to it's starting to to gain momentum, and through that and through people attending the business book club, what's what's happening is ideas are starting to to germinate and and to and to find legs. So I'm going to throw a few thoughts out at you, um, and hopefully some of them are on track. So the first thing is about our concept of change. 
and to recognize that change is not this big sweeping um, thing that happens and you transform an entire society. And I think sometimes we get we get sucked into that that's what good is. It must be, uh, I have lifted 20,000 kids in a community. Change is small. And often when we talk about change, we must not expect to see that change in our life in our lifetimes. Change is slow and it's complex, but we need to take that first step and initiate that first step because it builds, it builds. The second thing is that this isn't new. And I think that's important for me, is that the conversation on social entrepreneurship seemed to kind of get lost in the 70s and 80s when we were talking about, you know, when we shifted to big government, big capitalism conversations. But when you look at big companies like Unilever, the opportunity spotting for Unilever was, um, William Lever, I might have got his name wrong, um, watching women washing clothes in a very, so imagine the weather outside tonight and you're washing clothes in the street in the UK where it's raining, at least it's dry in Germany. This is not 19. <laughs> this is in the, late, in the 1800s. Yeah. And he was a chemist and he said how, his motivation, as the story is told, is how can I make their lives easier? And he came up with the principle of lathering soap. And that's the foundation of what is one of the, the world's biggest companies today. So it's about reframing what business opportunity is and reconnecting points of our societies, which I think often come up as disconnected in the discourse of today, that we feel disconnected from our value systems, we feel disconnected from communities, we feel disconnected from our roles and responsibilities as citizens. And so social entrepreneurship is not new, but it is very much part of us, and I think that's why the concept actually isn't as foreign as it could be when we start to talk about it. Um, yeah, uh, can I, I want to caution you as well, because I don't want to be evangelical about this. I don't want you to stop contributing towards your charities, we need them, and I don't want you to stop shopping at Pick and Pay because we need them too. But at the same time, this attaching a, a, a funding model, an earned income model to doing good, has to constantly be interrogated because you don't want to, and I'm gonna throw some of the question marks out so that you can keep thinking about it. You don't want to commoditize rights. Cape Town, should Cape Town be charging for water? Not at all, but you could argue that in a, in a city like Cape Town where there's not sufficient water, you would be meeting a market failure. So you constantly have to challenge what that profit and purpose relationship is. And there are some very basic human rights that must remain sacrosanct and should never be touched. And the other thing is that we must not use social entrepreneurship, I think talking of it maybe to your point, as an opportunity to enable governments across the world to relegate their responsibilities and not deliver goods and services that they have a responsibility to because it's easier for Spark schools to step into the gap. That doesn't mean that the South African government has less of a responsibility to improve the quality of education in our country. And so I say those because I'm very wary of evangelism. Just like I'm very wary of anybody who says to me they want to change the world. We must always be cognizant of what our view of the world is and what we want to impose on others. And I think that's what I really like about social entrepreneurship. That if I sell you something and you don't want it, <laughs> my social enterprise fails. So oddly, that relationship with profit actually enables an, an equality in the relationship, which charity in the relationship of benevolence doesn't have. Charity, I give you something, it's free, 
you feel you have to take it, and I feel like I've done the world a favor. The introduction of profit into the conversation around social change equalizes the relationship between you and I, because you have a choice. And when we go back to what our understanding of poverty is, we really want to create a society that has choices, and that's one of the best things that we can give, we can give people. Wow, what was that? Amazing. Yes, another question then. It's not fail, it's targets not okay. meet. Okay, fair um, yeah. That's we get that one. But the first the, the first comment was regarding funding and you know the funding be available, the corporates giving the funding, but they're not able to access the social entrepreneur. And the social entrepreneur is actually the person that connects the dots and makes sure that things are working. But how do they access that funding? So again, I'm gonna come up with a an answer that hopefully somewhere in the middle gives you some insight as to around your question. Remember, corporate social investment in South Africa sits at about six, six billion rand a year, according to Trialogue. It's not massive, actually. When you look at the complexity of social change in South Africa, the thing about CSI is that it is, let me reframe that. The thing about social entrepreneurship that differentiates it substantially is that the focus of the business is a social mission. The business exists to do good and earn an income at the same time. The thing about corporate social investment is that the business exists to earn profit and corporate social investment is a mandate that is often something they have to do. And some of them do it very willingly, but there's, there's different dynamics that sit there around compliance versus innovation, etc., etc. So, so I think corporate South Africa is, is quite generous in, in that it recognizes that it cannot succeed in our country if it doesn't actually tackle our societal complexities. Because 
we can't just rely on economic growth to strengthen our social our social development. We can't. It's, it's just we're not growing at a sufficient rate. We can't, you know, broaden the middle class at a sufficient rate to deepen the tax base that then allows the funding to be freed up for social development. We're just not in that reality. The reality we have is that we can create organizations that do both at the same time. And that for me is what is, and, and this is why I say with social entrepreneurship, you reframe the question. So the question isn't why is CSI not doing more to support social entrepreneurship? The question is, what can we do as South Africans to open up the middle of the spectrum so that we've got different ways of, of catalyzing social and economic change? <coughs> Look at this event tonight. It's a classic social enterprise. There's a, there's, I'm here, and Jane and Scoobs have got us all together for a greater good. But you're going to be spending money at the bar, I hope, and buying more than three books, what have you. That's the difference is we opening up the ways that we can achieve social and economic change in South Africa. I don't know if that's somewhere there is a is a dam. Yes, Deborah, your question. Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> here it comes. <laughs> I want to thank you for being here tonight. It's a privilege to have you here this week. And I'm going to ask you a question about being in the social environment. Um, Jacques and I started this business book club two years and it's been going very well. Um, and we know what we're doing with it. 78%, never mind the black libraries in the schools in South Africa, 78% of grade four learners in this country cannot read. 40% plus of my age in this country cannot read. What could you as an author how would you change that as an author? What would you do? Because what's the use of writing a book if no one can read it? But isn't that what we're about? We're about telling stories and sharing experiences and connecting with people. And the message isn't just in reading the book. The message is in a TED talk or sitting talking to you or um, going out into communities and, and, and understanding what their interpretation of social entrepreneurship is. So I, I, I think I have two answers, because I don't have an immediate answer, which is that change is slow. And what you're doing today, and that's what I'm saying, you might not see in your lifetime a country that has a 100% literacy rate, rate. But if you hadn't started this initiative, we might never see that country. And that's why I encourage all of us to take whatever small step it is that we think it is feasible for us to do, to shift the little bits of fabric in the ecosystem, and to keep talking, and to stay connected as, as citizens, and, to, and uh, to, to stay connected to people, see people. I, th I think that's what we're here for. What would I do as an author? What do you think your responsibility is? I mean, you've got a responsibility that you've written something, which is forever. I mean, a book is forever. It has a short lifespan, but it's still there forever as an educational project. But I can give you the answer that says that we sent the book to public schools in four provinces across South Africa, to all the public school libraries. I can give you that answer, because that's exactly what we did. But that answer doesn't measure change. 
So I can't give you the answer that tells you that I have directly, measurably impacted on somebody's world. So, so it, it, I, I can give you quantitative answers about the talks and the number of students and the teaching and the, what we do to promote the conversation. But I part of the problem is presence. Which is, but I know that I will not see the change in my lifetime. But that's okay. And I'm not so sure that the change that I want to see is the right change either. And that's also okay. And I, I have to, I have had a moral conviction that it's on the right track. <laughs> Makes sense to me. But hey. You, you have an answer to that. Please share. Understanding, you know, when you when you're part of a process, you can't be part of the full process. And we've 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 definitely realised that through through the business book club, um, you know, to to relate to some of this, where the business book club receives book and we distribute books, but we're not teaching anybody to read either. You know, and our relationship is to, is to but we're not seeing it as our job to teach people to read. We're expecting that there's somebody in the other end who, 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 who that's part of their social consciousness. Our social consciousness is about making sure that it's accessed and we've got certain, let's say, parameters of what we'd like to operate. One of it is we don't give the books to libraries where they're going to be used as doorstops or where they would be put on a cupboard or you know, be, be used to make fire because this is paper. So this becomes, why would I want to read this if, I, if it can make me warm in cold weather like this? So, so we've got to be careful for that. When we look at the business book club, we're saying we need to be responsible about what we're doing in our social uh, endeavors, and we want to give this to libraries that have got a system in place. So we're looking for libraries that have got systems in place that we know that our books would be recycled to fulfill our end of the bargain of what we saw our role is. Um, so yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, so when the author writes the book, they write the book to give access to stories. Education. Yeah. 
whether the person at the other end will necessarily read the story, maybe it gets read to that person, or maybe maybe somebody in the family reads the book and they start educating those around them about some of the stuff that happens in the book and they spark different thoughts. And that's how the cycle starts, yeah. which is slow and which we might never see. Yeah. So I think um, a lot of this goes back to, and thank you, because I think, I'm hoping that these are good examples and Greg and I have actually spoken about these before. We constantly have to think about the negative consequence of us doing good. Constantly have to think about it and reframe it. There is so much that has happened in society in the name of good. You can start with religion, you can start with the eradication of First Nation communities in Canada or in Australia, you know, all under this moral high ground. We have to be very, very careful of moral high grounds. What we really can do is introduce choice. And that's what, if, if you distribute books, but I really don't want your book on the disruptors, I would rather have the latest uh, help me go yogi book in my library, but each book is one rand, that's fine, I suddenly have a choice. It's the difference between in South Africa where we've seen plenty of campaigns to plant trees in the Northern Cape in a water-scarce country. Planting trees does not make us a more ecologically sustainable country in many ways. It's about recognizing the complexity of social change, or maybe planting trees does actually help in terms of carbon emissions. It's the story that I, I know we've spoken about often of building a swimming pool, corporate social investment, a swimming pool in a school in Orange Farm, where the school's very proud to have a swimming pool, but there's no teacher. It goes to a point of systems. Um, the pool is in a dangerous space. There's nobody to maintain the pool. The pool ends up emptying and becoming a big empty space. This is the Google philosophy. It's do no harm. And remember that communities are worse off after you've stepped in to do good than before you stepped in. And I think that's a really, really important principle to consider at every step of this journey, is what is the impact of my thinking? What is the impact of my work? What is the impact of my being here? And can I be here for the long term? And that's why social entrepreneurship is powerful, because as soon as I start adding a value to my book, I introduce sustainability into the equation and I know that my social enterprise can last a whole lot longer than the grant funded organization that can last as long as the grant. That's why it's powerful. Any, any more questions? We're going to allow for two more questions and then we're going to wrap it up. So we've got one question over here and then a question over there and then we'll We'll end off with a with a song so or something. Song. I don't know. We'll find someone. <laughs> Too. Well, it's on our podcast too. So it's all good. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? What was the 
the question was, are you going to join us when we go to Signature Library to present the author? Is that a yes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're joining us when we go to Signature Library. Because we, we, need, we, need, we need people to, to read to the, to the children, we need people to, to talk about what it means to actually have knowledge through books. I mean, what, is it, what does books mean in your life? We're agreeing. Jane, question from you. You had your hand up there? Yes. I've got a question from someone who's regular and unfortunately couldn't make it and wanted to ask this question, Karen. Um, so her question is where do social entrepreneurs from underprivileged backgrounds get funding and how do they go about getting investors funding to develop a manufacturing business? Okay, so um, there's obviously no quick and simple answer to that. Uh, funding is one of the biggest barriers that social enterprises face because they don't exist. So it's, you know, you're sitting between two spectrums. But South Africa has a social enterprise fund, run by the IDC. So, um, which, so please never quote me on numbers. I do, I do have to put that as a caveat because I'm terrible with numbers. But I think they fund up to 50 million, not, not individually, but they have a fund of 50 million rand a year, an average of disbursement of 50 million rand a year. Um, only. <laughs> I think it's quite good. <laughs> but I think this is this is what we talk about legit, legitimizing the space. We have a social enterprise fund. There's substantial business incubators that focus on social enterprises. Um, the SAB Innovation Awards is a fantastic space to start. They've got a range of um, different entry points. The funding environment is opening up quite dramatically. Um, for lots of different reasons, and I, I would encourage social entrepreneurs to take full advantage of it and, and use the ecosystem to learn and progress. Do you want to have a last question? about it. maybe we should ask Andrew at the back um, but it's a question about what does Spark do which is one of these social entrepreneurs about promoting social entrepreneurs in their curriculum so maybe this is a better answer to your question so first of all curriculum is a very sophisticated space that um, I, I, I certainly can't answer to but it's quite established um, but we're developing an open source curriculum on teaching social entrepreneurship that um, universities and schools will be able to access. So that's how, asking about what are the next steps, what are our responsibilities, this, this is a constantly evolving conversation with multiple layers. Um, and I often feel that the, the role of folk passion is about is to, is to constantly keep staying on that frontier, what are our next steps? So I can't answer on behalf of Spark, but I know that entrepreneurship education is, is definitely a growing conversation at school level. Um, and I, I, I find it hard to imagine that social doesn't creep in there at some point. There's an answer.
picking up on that view afterwards. He's, uh, he's very knowledgeable on that. But we've come to the end of tonight. Karen, thank you so, so much for sharing your knowledge, for having this conversation with us, for being able to field all these difficult questions. Can we have a big round of applause for you? What a great work that you're doing on, on uh, social entrepreneurship and you know making us a, a dent in our country in your in your small way and in your small contribution. I mean that's really really cool and really amazing from you. And guys, thank you for for everybody that has attended the Business Book Club. You know, without you guys, you know, Kevin and I sitting here and just talking to ourselves. I mean, we could do that, but it's much more fun having you guys here. Thank you for your support of donating uh, books to the Business Book Club. Um, you know, we don't charge an entrance fee, but your books are really, really appreciated. If you by accident did forget to bring a book time, don't worry. I know where you can find a book. Just have a look around. There's a few downstairs. There's a few next to you. Uh, so if you did forget to bring a book, please do not feel bad. Just buy one and preferably buy a disruptor book, at, you know, and donate it. We've got a big box at the back there, so you can just pop it in there. Uh, we won't tell anybody. We'll just appreciate it. and. But more than us appreciating, there are libraries that will appreciate your donation. Because that is what this is all about. Please stay um, afterwards, have a, have a drink with us. Kim, will you do uh, signatures? Yeah, so you, you, you can buy a book and the author will sign it for you. Um, and then as always, we love our venue. Isn't this a cool venue to hang out? This is such a cool venue to hang out. So Deborah, thank you so much for giving us your venue and for allowing us up here. I mean, it's always great to, to have them here. Um, thank you to the guys behind the bar, Rand. Thanks, dude. Yeah. There's always a beautiful smile. Uh, Kimmy, for, 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 for doing the Facebook for us and, and making sure that we're live. We are going to busy uh, stream our podcast. We, we've recorded a bunch of the Business Book Club um, um, events that we've had. And because this is also knowledge. I mean, and we learn from it. Did, did any, is anybody walking away here tonight with, with not have learned anything? So is anybody walking away here and have learned something? Absolutely. Okay. Because that's Great that's privilege. that's that's the power of knowledge. Is you've got to come to events like this um, to learn something, to walk away with at least one thing that you learned. Because that's the power of books, and that's why we have to distribute books. Too. So we're going to share. We're going to start sharing our podcasts, and please feel free to share that. Share the love. Share the knowledge. Uh, forward it on. Get people to start to listen and to come donate the books. And that we can really make a massive impact in South Africa. We are in desperate need. And as we've discussed tonight, it's, it's, it's our duty. It's our duty. So, you know, it's about stop sitting on the sideline and actually getting involved and sharing it. And social media is a beautiful way to do that. Jane, did I miss anything? Jane, and thank you. I did miss something. I, I missed you. And our next book club is Okay, we'll get to the next book club. But first, let's get to Jane and to Chantal. They're the ones who happen, make things happen behind the scenes, making sure that there's a register and people get it and the invites go out and all of that. So can we just give a, a big round of applause to Jane and Chantal? Right, and our next business book club is the 24th of? 24th of July. And we've got Jane, who do we have? The power of? Meeting. Uh, but, but that's another cool event. We're going to send those invites out very, very soon. Please join us for that. They, um, they're pretty exciting. We've got, we're going to have two authors um, here at Scoot. And yeah, please have a beautiful evening. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot. Fantastic.
Thank you. 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 Thank you.